0: Okay, so we're in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Last week was our our first session together, and and so I did a little introduction. I gave you some reminders if you weren't here last week, and if you were, you're like me, you need a reminder anyway. And uh, so I have a few things to just to to go through as we as we catch up to the second Beatitude. I've got some related scriptures there. I always, always, uh, it's kind of the way I approach scripture after many years of reading it over and over and over and over is is I kind of use the analogy of faith when I interpret Scripture. In other words, I let Scripture be its own best interpreter. So I've got some things that will give you jumping off points that will help you look at this beatitude, the second beatitude, with a little more depth just from Scripture's own commentary on it. So here's the things I wanted to review with you. One is that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, longest uh, sermon, his longest teaching, was spoken to the disciples, even though there's multitude of crowds around him, it said his disciples came to him and they sat down and he spoke to them. So this was not just a huge multitude. It's kinda of like going to Billy Graham Crusade, you know, where they had thousands and thousands of people, and there'd be all these people hearing the same message, and at the end maybe hundreds or thousands would respond to an invitation. But everybody heard the same message and certainly not all those people in the Colosseums were were already Christians. But Jesus was speaking to those he was calling to himself, and they responded to that call. And so these disciples that Jesus had already uh, kind of drafted, you could say, you know, kind of like Uncle Sam's, I want you... He did this with the fishermen. He said, follow me. And so they followed him. And so Jesus' beckoning, these disciples began to gather. They were particularly and personally called. And so when he he speaks this sermon, he's speaking really to this smaller group within this huge congregation that are gathered around this mountain. And so we need to remember that because uh, God's word is spoken with a hearing ear, you know, to those who have ears to hear. And so this is what he's doing with these disciples. It's broken into two Major sections, one is the Beatitudes, which deals with the character of the people that are in God's kingdom, because this is, a, this is about the kingdom of heaven, this, this sermon, about how God governs among his people. And so the Beatitudes are really what's true of me and you, as those who have responded to Jesus. You know, we may read those, and like last week, we kind of thought about the idea of picking out a favorite. Anybody pick out the favorite, uh, blessed are you when you're persecuted? Anybody pick that one? You know? We probably wouldn't pick that one as our favorite one, but that's true of us. All of these are true of us. That's true of the character of the people that God rules among and within and then through in the world. And so we need to see that. That's the first major section. It's a a lot shorter than the second section. And then from chapter 5, verse 17 to the end of this sermon, Jesus talks about the conduct of those who are identified by the quality, the character of the Beatitudes. This is how they convey themselves, this is how they conduct themselves in life, and he gives some typical circumstances and how a believer will respond in those circumstances, about divorce and remarriage, about lust, about uh, what you do to help people, about what you do with anxiety, some typical things to show us how we respond in life. And so when you read this sermon, uh, it's just an amazing sermon, isn't it? just a tremendous part of Scripture. You can't, ever, you can't exhaust it. But to see that, that this is who we are, this is how we conduct ourselves in life, and because of that, we are salt and light. We're different. This sermon came to the earth and just cut across the fabric of man-made philosophies and ideals. Everything that Jesus said is just upending the way people think. The conventional wisdom is thrown out the door, and here is the truth as eternity comes into time, and Jesus speaks exactly what he's about and how the kingdom of God is different, absolutely, and eternally different than the kingdoms of this age. So it's an amazing sermon. And that's why, it's, that's why even after we believed on the Lord Jesus, it still cuts across the grain of who we are. We go, well, that's who I am. How come I'm, I'm not doing better at that? You know? And this is what I'm supposed to do. Why, why didn't I do better at that? And it's because this is totally transforming us from an earthly perspective to God's perspective. It's given us wisdom that uh, men didn't come up with and really they, they can't operate out of except Jesus has called us. And because when He begins a work in us, He will bring it to completion, which is a great promise, isn't it? He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a doubt in that. Jesus will finish what He starts, and that's, that's good to know. So there, there's a sermon on its own. The kingdom of God, I already said that, it won't be, the kingdom of God has started and is totally fulfilled in Jesus, but it won't be realized totally for us until the second advent. And we'll look at that at the close of this, this look at the second beatitude today. Jesus' life and ministry fully displays God's rule. It continues in each generation of believers, and so now we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. You know, we hear that all the time, and, and we are. This is how Jesus continues his ministry. So by this we know some people said God has a sense of humor because he's chosen us to be this, but he will accomplish that. The Beatitudes, the blessedness of the kingdom is not a function of happenstance or circumstance, but it's rooted and grounded in a good relationship with God, righteousness in Christ Jesus. And so we're blessed in that. And that doesn't ever change. That blessing does not change. We carry that blessing into every tribulation, into every trial, into every temptation, into every struggle in life. We carry this blessing of God. And so we have to remember that this blessing is not about, you know, I got this new thing and, man, I really feel good about it. You know, it's not that. It's this new life that we have, this new relationship that's been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus, we are blessed. Blessed is he whose lawless sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are covered. You know, that's the blessing, that we're brought and reconciled to God. So, here's an observation concerning laughter, because this second, this is is really contrary to human nature. Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That doesn't sound right, does it? Who wants to mourn? But those who are blessed are mourners, and they are comforted in that. So, do you know, it's never recorded in Scripture that God, not, excuse me, not God, it's never recorded in Scripture that Jesus, God incarnate, ever laughed. Or that Paul laughed, or that Peter laughed, or that John laughed. And Job and Jeremiah certainly are not recorded as having laughed. And the only time that God laughs in Scripture is when He taunts His enemies and laughs at the scoffers, their futility and their demise. He does that in several places in the Psalms. I've got them recorded here for you on your notes. And in Proverbs. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't laugh. I'm sure he laughed. But his priority was not having a good time or being number one, you know. That was not his priority. His priority was to bring the truth. And the truth was going to cause him to mourn, cause others to mourn. It was going to cause him to hurt. He was going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was. And all of this he did for us. So we can enjoy everything that God has given to man to be enjoyed, but it has to be within the bounds and the prescription of God's direction or it's not really right. And we can't make an end out of those things that bring pleasure. We use them as, an, as a means or a reminder to give thanks to God that He's provided all good things. So it's, we can drink wine, but we're not supposed to get drunk. You know, We can have sex, but only with our mate for life. We can enjoy all kinds of entertainment, but not to the neglect of the serious affairs of life. All of these things we can enjoy and we can laugh, but that's not our priority. And sometimes in, in life, maybe even for years and decades, we might not laugh hardly at all. But we can still be sober-minded and pleasing to God because we've responded to His call. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isn't that good to know? It's really good to know, isn't it? Because you and I, if we haven't mourned already... And we're old enough, we've all mourned, we will mourn. In fact, we're probably even mourning now in some ways that are, you know, just beneath the surface or that are always with us. And we'll look at that a little bit about that idea of of carrying this, this mourning, this grief uh, with us all the days of this temporal existence because we mourn uh, because of loss. So I want to read this to you. I won't read all those to you, but I want to read Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is an interesting psalm. It's the only psalm in which there's not a real good resolution for the complaints and the difficulties that the psalmist is facing. And it's not a, it's not a, cheerful, it's not a cheerful psalm, but it does, have, it does have something at the beginning of it that, that gives encouragement. O oh Lord, God of my salvation... I cry out by day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? My companions have become darkness. Well, that doesn't play well, does it? You ever been in a place like that? Had an experience like that? The good news is, oh, Lord, God of my salvation. That's the good news right there. The rest of it's really dark. That's the only psalm that's like that really thoroughly through and through that way. But there's a lot of psalms that have that about mourning, about suffering, about the the grief that that brings into a person's life. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Man, what a great promise. Because we do enter mourning sometimes. Sometimes it lasts for a long time. Sometimes it's uh, fairly brief. We're going to look at a lot of the aspects of, of what that may mean to us. So, Here's the realities of mourning. I just broke this into two points basically this morning. Mourn means the expression of sadness over loss or misfortune. How many ever ever had a loss that you mourned? You know, I was a hospice chaplain for about four or five years as a volunteer in Spearman. When They they were the smallest town in the United States to have a hospice program at the time. And I was a chaplain. And so one of the things I had to do is I had to go to ten weeks of training and then every once in a while I have to give a seminar to the volunteers. And usually I gave a seminar on grief and mourning. And so we go through the steps of grief. And, and uh, psychologists have broken this out about mourning. And they've categorized, basically, you know, the top ten reasons for mourning. What do you think number one is? What? Death of a loved one, De- a loved one certainly. You know which loved one? Yeah. A child child's the greatest loss that people experience because that's totally out of the natural order kids are supposed to outlive their parents not vice versa then the spouse then they have all kinds of stuff that goes down you know i was somebody it was well it was uh, joe sharing monday at our bible study that he would lost a dog two or three weeks ago and how he mourned that well yeah, naturally i got a dog right now that when she dies, i'm gonna man i'm gonna be broken you know i'm gonna really be broken but, you know, we, we, we mourn because of loss, don't we? That's what gets us, whether it's a job or finances or relationship or even a relationship through death. Man, that's that's horrible. That's hard to bear. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. People that don't mourn, they don't get any comfort. And some people try not to mourn. I remember one time I used to tend the, the uh, cemetery with a buddy of mine and at Texas, is about nine acres of mowing and weed-eating around headstones. You never had as much fun as weed-eating for four hours straight around headstones, you know, especially when it's 110 degrees or something. It had 264 juniper trees that had been planted, and once a year they wanted to, to trim them to look like a mushroom. <laughs> and for all of this, they paid us like, I think, 2000 bucks a year. It was basically community service. <laughs> But we took it on, you know, and and, uh, and I remember I one time, I, since I was taking care of the the cemetery, I also had to, to go out and map out the grave sites where people would come in to dig the graves. I had to go get the map out, and the map was not that great. And I'd have to locate that. And we didn't have a backhoe, but I did have a front end loader. So I'd have to contract with a guy to come and dig the hole, but afterwards I could fill it in, you know. And so one time I was, I was, I was getting ready for this uh, funeral. The guy told me, here's, here's the person's name, you know, go look up their plot, show me where it's at. said, by the way, the family doesn't have a, they don't have a pastor. Would you mind giving a few remarks? So I go out there. I locate the thing. I've mowed it and weeded it that week. I locate the gravesite. The guy puts all the dirt in my dump truck. I haul that around behind the barn so it's not there, you know, during the service. Go back into town, put on my suit. Come back out, say a few words at the gravesite, go back, change back to my clothes, come back, drive the dump truck out there, get the front end loader, fill up the grave, you know. But I remember this guy didn't, he had four people show up. He didn't have a church service, four people showed up. He didn't even want that. Those people didn't mourn. There's no comfort. There's no comfort. You have to mourn to be comforted. And so this is a great promise that Jesus gives because certainly things that cause grief and suffering are going to come to everybody, but only those who mourn are going to be comforted. And then those who mourn can comfort others with the same comfort they have received from God, who's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Then they can step in and they can conduct themselves as mourners to give comfort to those who are mourning. But people haven't mourned, they can't do it. They have nothing. They've not received any comfort themselves. So Jesus gives a statement to us about mourning. And here's some synonyms. Grieve and lament and anguish and sorrow and suffer and wail. All those are good biblical words, aren't they? All of them. So Christ followers, Christians grieve, but not like those that don't have hope. I bet I've used that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at every gravesite I've done the whole time I was doing pastoral ministry. Yeah, we grieve, but not like those who don't have hope. Because there's no assuaging that grief. Compartments, whole segments of life have to be shut down and put aside because they don't have any way to grieve. They don't have any hope. Can you imagine being hopeless? I mean, I felt kind of hopeless sometimes. I mean, really being without hope, that's, that's, that's literally Hell. That is the lake of fire, no hope. you know. But can you imagine living that way in this age? That's why Luther said, and it's like the way I quote, quote, quote Luther. Luther said, this, this world is the only hell a believer will ever know and the only heaven an unbeliever will ever experience. Because there's no hope. There's no hope. Paul says, you're, you're without God, you're without hope in the world. What a terrible thing to be without hope. But we don't grieve that way, do we? We grieve in hope of seeing Jesus face to face. We grieve with the, with this, this great beatitude of, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think about that sometimes as Jesus is speaking to this crowd of disciples, you know, and he says, he says this beatitude, blessed are those, you know, who hunger for God, you know, blessed are they who are pure in heart because they will see God and all of a sudden those that have the Holy Spirit go there he is right there, he's talking to us, it's amazing so Christ followers don't grieve that way even though we grieve, so here's some aspects, what do we mourn, well we already talked about that loss and brokenness, but it really goes back to the loss of paradise, doesn't it, that's what we grieve, that's what all humanity grieves really, but those without the hope that's in Christ Jesus, they don't know how to try to Get that back. Because when the the intimacy with God was broken in the garden and innocence fled the scene, identity, the human identity was fractured. It was gone. People had no connection with God. You know, they, they don't know what they're living for or about. And so we really grieve this loss, even though we might not be able to put our finger on it. We grieve this loss of this intimacy with God that's only restored in Christ Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. They get their identity back. They get, their, they get innocence back. They have their intimacy with God restored through Christ Jesus. And so they become the new creation. So the mourning's really really about sin. That's, that's what mourning is always about. It might be uh, our sin. You ever mourn over your sin? Sure you do. Probably daily, huh? I was just noticing the other day... I, uh, I'm not a very patient person. And so when I'm driving this bus for all these old people to Claremont, you know, and I'm in Amarillo traffic, some of y'all are terrible drivers. I just got to tell you. you know? And, and it, it just really dawned on me. You know, it's not, it's not that driving makes me impatient. It's that I'm impatient and driving draws that out. I thought, oh, God. I'm just impatient. I'm resentful of people not towing the line the way I want them to. And that's what comes out when I get behind the wheel of the bus and things don't go where people don't go 45 and a 45. They go 29. I'm going, come on! <laughs> or when somebody goes around me going 70 in a 50 and they get to the stoplight first. And I drive up next to them and I feel like going... <laughs> you know. But all of that impatience... It's just revealed to me from that circumstance. And I mourn over it. I say, God, when will I be patient? When will I? And I resolve every morning. I mean almost every morning that I go to work three days a week to drive this bus. Almost every morning, Tuesday through Thursday, I say, God, help me to be patient today. To be patient today in traffic. Not to think bad things about that bad driver. And almost every morning, by about 8.30, because I start about 7.30, I, I find that impatience is rising up. You know? And it has to be mastered, doesn't it? It has to be mastered. Sin's always crouching at the door. But you've got to master it, or you end up being a mourner over the same thing over and over and over the rest of the days of your life. And, and we are mourners the rest of the days of our life, but less of those who mourn. We don't ever get past this. In this age... This life, we never get past mourning our brokenness because we're going to be broken until we die. But we should be maybe seeing new areas of brokenness and dealing with those areas instead of going over the same old brokenness all the time. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. I, I haven't lived long enough, maybe. So we understand, along with all creation, that we're groaning, aren't we? We are groaning, we're groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. So even if it's not our own personal sin, we're mourning the fact that that the earth is not as it should be. Things are not like they ought to be, and we mourn. That righteous man Lot, Peter says, he mourned, he was vexed by what he saw, the conduct of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, because he was not a participant, it wasn't his sin. It vexed his soul. That this went on. It, doesn't it vex your soul to watch what goes on in the world? Doesn't it vex your soul? do not you mourn over the political atmosphere of the United States and the, the racial animosity that's here? Doesn't that break your heart? I mean, I'm not talking you're getting down on the floor and weep. I'm talking isn't there just a pressure on your heart. Don't you? Doesn't that vex you? Doesn't it cause you to mourn? Sure it does. It caused Jesus to. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have taken you to myself and you wouldn't have me? Now I have to leave you alone to your own destruction? Lazarus, Lazarus, my friend, because things are broken, you died. Get up out of the grave. And Jesus shows that that's not always going to be the way it is, but it is now. And it will be till Jesus comes back. This awaits the second advent. We're not going to be done with mourning until... Jesus shows up. If we ever really get if we ever get to Christian perfection, which is one thing that Wesley taught, you know. He had a little book called Christian Perfection. I read it. I didn't understand it. <laughs> I don't think he did either. That's But but he just meant that people could be perfected in love. Well, I hadn't met that person yet, but maybe maybe there are people that are perfected in love. I don't know. I'm not. You know, I'm not. But since we're not perfected until we see Jesus face to face, we're always going to be vexed by what's holding us back. And it's either our sin or just the whole environment that we're in, this whole world system that's broken, that Jesus is going to repair. He's going to make it and set it right. And then there'll be no more mourning. So because of this sin, Luther called this the, the theology of the cross. He, he saw the Catholic Church as one of, the, one of the big errors he saw in the Catholic Church is they had a theology of glory. St. Peter's Basilica, all the robes and the accoutrements and the refinements of the clergy, you know, and trying to make it the greatest kingdom on earth. And he said, no, the Christian follows a theology of the cross. Jesus did, didn't he? It's a theology of the cross. There's always the cross before glory, and the cross makes you mourn. It makes you mourn. It's not easy to carry the cross, and it's not your mother-in-law, You know? It's this body of death that we drag around, isn't it? It's this this warring with the flesh. Uh, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But still, even after he says that, that there's therefore now no condemnation, he goes on to say, but man, we groan, we suffer, we don't know how to pray as we ought. But we are convinced that nothing's going to separate us from the love that God's placed on us until we see him. And then, you know, it's going to be perfect. And in the meantime, God's working all this terrible, hurtful stuff together for good, which is an amazing thing to consider, isn't it? It's not that easy to believe on Tuesday afternoon, but it's an amazing thing that God's working everything in our lives together. Through all the morning, all the difficulty, all the trials, all the failures, He's working all that together for our good, even as we walk through this. I've got to read this to you. The, the Puritans used to have this concept of the veil of tears, you know, they get a bad rap, but they didn't think that way. Here's, this is a great little book to get. It's called The Valley of Vision, a bunch of Puritan prayers. I think I might have read one of these before too. I can't remember. This one's a, a Cry for Deliverance. Heavenly Father, save me entirely from sin. I know I am righteous through the righteousness of another, but I pant and pine for likeness to you. I am your child and should bear your image. Enable me to recognize my death to sin. When it tempts me, may me be deaf it to its voice, delivery from the invasion as well as the dominion of sin. Grant me to walk as Christ walked, to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. I abhor my body of death, its indolence, envy, meanness, pride. Forgive and kill these vices. Have mercy on my unbelief, on my corrupt and wandering heart. When your blessings come, I begin to idolize them. And set my affection on some beloved object, children, friends, wealth, honor. Cleanse this spiritual adultery and give me chastity. Close my heart to all but you. Sin is my greatest curse. Let your victory be apparent to my consciousness and displayed in my life. Help me to be always devoted, confident, obedient, resigned, childlike in my trust of you. To love you with soul, body, mind, strength. To love my fellow man as I love myself. And to be saved from unregenerate temper. Hard thoughts, slanderous words, meanness, unkind manners. I need to put that on my dashboard on my bus. (laughs) To master my tongue and keep the door of my lips. Fill me with grace daily that my life be a fountain of sweet water. Man, I can identify with that. I really like this little book. It's a great great book. So where was I? Talking about sin. So consider Luke. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here's the prodigal. Man, he was going to live life, you know, he's going to be a hedonist. He was just going to enjoy things, man. Just take money, you know, just enjoy things. When he came back, he said, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he's comforted by the Father's love. He says, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes. Let's have a feast. He's comforted because he mourned his sin. The tax collectors on the temple mount. He says, Father, God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, he goes away justified. Comfort comes to those who mourn the brokenness, who mourn what's going on. It doesn't come to those who say, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to do better. Those other people are wrong. Yeah. That guy's a terrible driver. Look at me. (laughs) No, you know it goes it comes to those who mourn their brokenness. That's where the comfort comes. It's when we come before God honestly. Okay, where am I at here? How deep can grief go? Well, I already read you Psalm eighty eight. How deep can grief go? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how deep grief can go. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. And when you read Isaiah chapter fifty three You see the trade-off there, don't you? He was pierced for our transgressions. He tasted this grief and sorrow for us. He did these things in our place. He was the one who was deserted by the Father, that we would never have to be deserted by the Father, never forsaken by the Father. But sometimes we may still feel like we are forsaken, huh? Sometimes the events, the circumstances are so overpowering, so weighty that we become like Paul and we despair of life itself. happen that's how deep grief can go but Jesus has already plumbed the depths of all of that he's taken all that into himself for our sake so think about Job That, that was a deep grief wasn't it can you imagine Job lose all your kids all your livelihood and then lose your wife's support lose your health I mean wow one time I lost a baseball glove you know I mean What have I lost compared to Job, who's there for our instruction, compared to Christ Jesus, who didn't just lose it but gave it up? Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup for me. But there wasn't another way. So the remedy for mourning, which is really the the foundation for the beatitude, because the beatitude comes on the fact that, that we mourn. Because that's where comfort comes in. Christ, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief for our sake. Isaiah chapter 40 says, comfort, comfort you my people. Tell them they've paid double for their sins. I don't know exactly what that means, except I know that Jesus paid more than enough. Comfort my people on the basis of what? Their sins have been paid double for. Isn't that amazing? Think of all the sins you committed. Well, you can't remember them all, can you? Think about the really bad ones. Think about the really bad ones. You ever, you ever think about the really bad sins that you've done? You know, Augustine, his really bad sin was he stole pears when he was a little boy. That's what he remembered in his confessions. Oh, I remember this. How could I steal a pear? You know. But I, I think I could trump him. You know what I mean? And sometimes I think about those sins. And then I remember that God doesn't think about them. That's an amazing thing to me. Because I do. I do. I think about them. I think how some of those sins I committed probably really harmed some people. I, I pray, God, somehow, you know, that's years ago. I, I pray that you race to them somehow. I hope it didn't ruin their lives, you know. The thing that I did, the thing I was involved in, God, I, I pray that it didn't happen, but God's not holding that to my account. I mourned that. He gave me the comfort of knowing that I'm forgiven. Isn't it amazing that God... Who knows everything forgets sin. I, that's astounding. So we're comforted. So now here we are. This is this is what's been established. This is what's been done in Christ Jesus, who is the Man of Sorrows. Now we've received the Holy Spirit, whose nickname is the Comforter, the Comforter who comes to us and reminds us and reconstitutes the promises for us over and over and over, speaking to us through God's Word and bringing that comfort. So, this joy that comes on the heels of that becomes strength for us. Nehemiah had the strength of joy. He said, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here you are building this thing, you know, getting ready to, for God's occupation of this place. And he'll fill us with glory. And then that glory will bleed off of the mountain here in Jerusalem and go off into the nations. And what's going to be the strength? It's going to be the joy of knowing that because we've mourned and been comforted that the Holy Spirit's always with us. It becomes our strength. Ultimately, though, this is what's, this is what's great. Revelation chapter five says this. I want to read this to you. Revelation chapter five. This is right after uh, John gets caught up into the heavenlies. He said, "Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, and no one in heaven or on earth." Or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So here he comes to the, he comes to the finale, of the revelation, and there's nobody there to finish this off. And so history is going to keep on going. It is cyclical, wars, rumors of wars, diseases, plagues, famine earthquakes, volcanoes, tidal waves. It's just going to keep on going. There's no sense. There's no end to this. And he begins to mourn. He weeps. There's nobody worthy. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God and every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and goes on in more worship and Jesus has ended the cycle of mourning isn't that amazing isn't that wonderful so now we have the Holy Spirit that points us because you know the Christianity is really a it's really an apocalyptic literature. It's really a it's really a, a literature that deals with an ultimate hope in it. And we haven't yet tasted that ultimate hope. Well, we've tasted it. But we've not been able to have a steady diet of that, have we? We don't have a steady diet of that hope. But here's the book that says keep going. Keep going, keep coming, because it's going to be completed. So then in the at the near the end of Revelation, we have a kind of a repeat. This is chapter 21. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow. No more mourning. No more waitingness. No more stuff at odds with our relationship or with all of creation before God. Everything's set right. Second Advent. Jesus coming back and established now. Won't that be something? Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That, that's a future tense. It's an experience that we have in the small mornings, the small hurts, the, the things of this age, but it's something that's going to be totally done away with when we're comforted in the presence of God forever and ever. Wow, isn't that something? Isn't that something? An eschatological religion that we live in, one that's full of hope, and the hope is at the end in all of its fullness. So this is what God has for those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Hmm. Choose you this day, you said, whom you will serve. Give me a heart to always choose you. Open my eyes. Give me the strength to stand. Make me a holy man. Help me choose you. Fill me with hunger, so I will no longer desire all the things I see. Now in your holiness, cleanse all my stubbornness. Make me what you want me to be. Deepen my heart, Lord, you're all that I need. But this heart of mine wanders so easily. I long to be free. Isn't that where we're at? Isn't that where we're at? We're, we keep feeling this angst, you know, Psychologists, we've got angst, we've got issues. And boy, we long for the fulfillment. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Isn't that wonderful to know? This is a wonderful thing that Jesus is pushing into us, That's providing us with, so that we will be a city set on a hill. We'll be different. We will be light. We will be salt. Our lives are totally fixed in a different way because of the truth of God that we've responded to. So I hope that's your testimony this morning. If it didn't, it will be. And if you're mourning now, know that there's comfort. There's comfort in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we look to you, God. We're, we're not sufficient for the ministry you've called us to, but you have given us sufficiency in Christ Jesus. God, we don't have within us the depths of all the resource we need, but you have in Christ Jesus. And God, even in these earthen vessels, you've placed transcendent power, that there'd be no confusing, God, who's the author of goodness, who's the author of comfort or righteousness. It's your power, God, in us. But Father, again, we we come to you as those who mourn, but with hope. And God, we ask you that by the Holy Spirit, knowing your comfort, God, we might be able to comfort others as we go through this life. God, we pray for that. We pray for sensitivity to you. We pray for just uh, more and more understanding of how you've lifted us up out of the mire, God, and established established us, given us a song in our hearts, God, that you might be glorified through us. Bless us, God. Make us a blessing. Fling us out into the harvest, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great morning.